So what we're doing with US REM is creating effectively a, a marketplace, a stock market, for these institutional investors who are writing big checks on big core stabilized properties, the sort of the equivalent, you know, solid cash flow. You sort of compare these to, you know, tax-free munis, for example. Um, and they can build, they can decide what kind of things they want to invest in, what kind of regions, what kind of properties, how much they wanted to put in it, build their portfolios, and then over time rebalance and sell their stuff in a relatively liquid environment. So that's the goal. Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay Ventures. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. On today's show, I have a great conversation with David S. Rose, a serial entrepreneur whose latest venture is US REM, the US real estate market. US REM is a startup developing a capital market platform for fractional institutional ownership in commercial real estate assets. What that means in English, as he's helping institutions buy pieces of commercial buildings. David's path to his current venture has really been a lifelong journey. He comes from one of the generational New York real estate families, but has very interestingly dedicated a huge portion of his life to modernizing and tech-enabling the industry. He was one of the early pioneers of prop tech. David shares some fascinating insights in the history of real estate, why the real estate industry has been so slow to adopt technology, and he tells us about where it's going. We also discuss Singularity University and Andrew Yang, who's currently running for the mayor of NYC. There's a connection between both groups and that both are very forward thinking. Singularity University pr promotes a thesis that technology is advancing at an exponential pace, which is much faster than people realize. There are material social implications of this that David gets into in the chat. He also lays out his case for Andrew Yang, and explains why he, should, he thinks he should be the next mayor of NYC. David is absolutely brilliant. That will be self-evident. His insights are unique, and his opinions are extremely well thought out. We cover a lot in this chat, and I think it's a super entertaining one. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Foundershield. Foundershield is a tech-enabled commercial and health insurance brokerage that focuses on servicing high-growth companies. They service thousands of VC-backed and public companies, including many of the brand names you probably know. If you're interested in learning more, visit foundershield.com. Welcome, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for being on today. Thank you for inviting me. All right. So before we start uh, getting into the questions here, I'd like to start by actually doing your introduction for you. Uh, that way I can brag about you a little bit in the way you might be uncomfortable. And so, it'll be a lot shorter. Yeah, probably. Uh, David has uh, an unbelievably accomplished background. Uh, I'll run through a couple of the things here. I'm sure we'll uncover more in our conversation. David is the founder and chairman of New York Angels, the founder of Rose Tech Ventures, the founder of Gust, and most recently the founder of U.S. Real Estate Market, U.S. RAM, which we're going to talk more about, a platform that's enabling fractional investment in commercial real estate assets. He's also very active in the startup community and the community at large. Uh, he's one of the associate founders of Singul Singularity University, and he's a board member at the 92nd Street Y. David, what did I miss? Anything else you want to tap in there? 
<laughs> a bunch of other stuff, depending on the context. I've written a couple of New York Times bestselling books, uh, the standard textbook on how to be an angel investor called Angel Investing, and the standard textbook for how to start a high growth company called the Startup Checklist, 25 Steps to a Scalable Business, uh, and a bunch of other things. But that's a good place for starters. That's incredible. Well, it's, it's a good background for folks to know who you are, because as we get into this, I want them to understand your experience. Um, so why don't we start at the top? Would you mind telling us about your current venture, U.S. real estate market? Sure. After, so I have a whole history of starting out in real estate. I'm actually a fifth generation entrepreneurial real estate developer. My family's been in real estate for a century. And I started in real estate, my career in academics and real estate, and then went into tech and spent much of my career in tech startups and then angel investing and back to tech startups. And now I've pulled all of that together with the current venture, which is called U.S. RAM. It's the U.S. real estate market. And you can think of it as sort of the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ for commercial real estate. But unlike a crowdfunding platform, and there are some interesting real estate crowdfunding platforms around, this is designed for institutional investors. So this is designed for you know very large family offices, um, mid-sized and large institutions to be able to acquire fractional interests in large prime commercial real estate, and then rebalance their portfolios and stuff as required. So will you fill in some gaps here? So you mentioned the family as a background in real estate. Would you give a little color on that for everybody listening? Sure. So my family, um, multiple sides came to New York around the turn of the last century and just started on the Lower East Side. And my grandfather and great uncle started a number of businesses, um, including Brooklyn Better Bleach and ultimately Rose Associates, which was a initially a builder and then graduated to developing their own business, their own properties, and moved from working class housing in the Bronx to middle class housing in Brooklyn to upper middle class housing in Manhattan. And then the next generation, which is my grandfather's three sons, joined the business after World War II, and they took it even larger and moved into office and moved out of the city. So my father, who is still going strong at the uh, age of 91, Amazing. was the one who led them into, uh, he built Pentagon City in Washington, D.C., one financial center in Boston. He was the genius behind Manhattan Plaza for the performing arts here in uh, New York City. Uh, so I had that as a whole legacy uh, that I was left and I, I joined into. And so my undergraduate degree is in urban planning from Yale. And then I started working in government for Senator Moynihan. I was Pat Moynihan's urban affairs expert. And then eventually ran his New York office here in the city. And then decided after a couple of years that at heart, I was an entrepreneurial private sector type. So I reluctantly left Moynihan. And by the way, if you get a congressional gig like that early in your career, it is more fun than a barrel of monkeys. I mean, at age 21, I was writing op-eds for the Times and conducting congressional investigations and sitting on boards with the mayor. But after a couple of years of, of that, I went back, uh, left Moynihan, went to Columbia, got my um, MBA in real estate finance. Um, and as you know, because we're both from the Columbia universe, and then joined the family business in real estate for a decade, which given the timing of that, um, since I'm a bit more mature, shall we say, than you are, uh, I happened to come into the business just as the computer revolution was starting. Mm -hmm. So uh, we were among the very, very, if I, if I didn't invent the field of prop tech, at least I was one of the very earliest pioneers, we were among the very first people to use spreadsheets to do real estate development pro formas. And if that sounds insane today to anybody listening to this podcast or listening to the Clubhouse Room, um, the spreadsheet was invented by two friends of mine, Bob Frankston and Dan Brooklyn, with VisiCalc. And so we started using VisiCalc on an Apple II to do real estate pro formas. And then from there, I went on and did a whole lot of first and 
in tech and then eventually moved from tech into uh, from real estate tech into tech and then tech into investing. And now I'm bringing it all back together again. What did uh, people do before Excel? Just out of curiosity. What was that like? or not, well, the, the term spreadsheet is from a sheet of paper that you spread out on the table. It's a giant, big ledger sized piece of paper. And you would literally either handwrite if you, and then erase with a pencil or even worse, if you were doing it for presentation to a bank, you type it out and then you change one number, recalculate on an adding machine or a calculator, all the numbers there and retype it on a spreadsheet. So literally when we, when we brought in uh, computer, you know, computers to do spreadsheet analytics for, for real estate, Four people at the company lost their jobs because they were sitting there were typists who were sitting there retyping these large wow. spreadsheets. That's unfathomable today. It's, uh, it's, it's mind-boggling. I mean, it's mind-boggling to me too. And I lived through it. That's amazing. So you're, so you're back at the real estate game. And I know you took a big detour and we'll go through that. And you were tech-focused more, more or less for a long period of time, the last decade or two. I have that right. Mm-hmm. So uh, what is the pain point you're trying to solve uh, with U.S. rent? So the challenge, real estate is the last bastion of non-tech. And so I mentioned that I invented the field of prop tech. So I actually created, designed and coded myself the world's first computerized real estate sales office that got a full page in InfoWorld in 1982. 1982. That's like 39 years or whatever is right from now, which is an insane amount of time. And you would have thought that would that kind of stuff happen. And we also created the did sold the first condominiums that had computers built into every apartment. I created the first location based social network because I had a building with everybody who had a computer. We created the first uh, multiple listing servers for New York City. We did the first use of webcams for construction projects. All this stuff. And I mean, when I was cycling through the whole business and was in construction, I created the first construction punch list software using Videx barcode scanners and everything else, you would think logically that you would then apply tech to, to real estate construction development, except it didn't happen. Every other industry was being updated with technology and real estate steadfastly was this old um, diehard non-tech universe and all aspects of it, whether it was construction or development, which is very entrepreneurial or management. I mean, you had some computers for running rent rolls and stuff, but that was about it. And so it was only in the last, God, five years or so that the, the field of prop tech has emerged as anything. I mean, nobody heard of prop tech for prior to 10 years ago, and I was mm-hmm. doing this stuff 40 years ago. So it just took a, a very, very long time to get this going. And one of the, one of the areas that uh, this affected is the capital markets. So real estate has historically been a very opaque, very inside baseball kind of a play. Development of properties is very entrepreneurial. I mean, even the biggest development organizations have, you know, four or five people max in their development operation. And the kind of money that's required for a major job are now in the literally billions of dollars, which means it's very institutional play. So there is no, you know, unlike companies that started small and could grow and people could get involved early on, that's not really true in real estate. It was sort of binary. It was either inside baseball from traditional people who were in it or it's large institutions. And so the way real estate historically was bought and sold and financed was either you built something yourself and you owned it, or alternatively, you bought a building from somebody else, which meant you have to have the chops to manage a property and the checkbook to buy a building and so on. Or 
you invested in a syndicate. And in a syndicate, a sponsor would, uh, who somebody with real estate knowledge would find a property to acquire, put hard money down as a deposit, and then go raise a bunch of capital from limited partners effectively um, to buy that property. It's these people in the syndicate, and they would buy the property and then hold it and sit on it for 10 or 15 years until they had enough value and they sold it and distributed the proceeds. But what that meant is it was very illiquid. You couldn't resell your share once you were in it. These were all privately held stuff. And so it was all inside baseball. In the 90s, you've had the development of REITs, real estate investment trusts, which are now effectively public companies that let you invest in a fund of real estate. But again, if you're an institutional investor, your choices are to buy a property yourself, give your money to a sponsor to manage, or give your money to a REIT manager to manage. There's nothing in the middle. So what do you do if you are a relatively sophisticated investor, but who's not a real estate person? You want to be able to buy and sell your choice of properties and hopefully not have to buy the entire building, buy a piece of it, and effectively do for real estate what you could historically do with securities, right? Buy a piece of it and build a portfolio, sort of like build your own REIT by deciding what you want to have in it and how much of that. And that hasn't been available in real estate literally until now. So the first change of this stuff were, were the real estate crowdfunding sites. I was one of the first investors in a great company called Realty Mogul, which was sort of bringing uh, fractionalized real estate to retail investors, retail accredited investors. Um, but that didn't help big institutional investors who have, were writing millions and tens of millions of dollars of checks. So what we're doing with US REM is creating effectively a, a marketplace, a stock market, for these institutional investors who are writing big checks on big core stabilized properties, they're sort of the equivalent, you know, solid cash flow. You can sort of compare these to, you know, tax-free munis, for example. Um, and they can build, they can decide what kind of things they want to invest in, what kind of regions, what kind of properties, how much they wanted to put in it, build their portfolios, and then over time rebalance and sell their stuff in a relatively liquid environment. So that's the goal. Is this a managed marketplace or a marketplace? Uh, the distinction being a managed marketplace I would characterize in the situation is you going out and either acquiring the supply, the real estate itself, or specifically partnering with people and bringing them onto the platform, or is it completely open? Anyone's going to list, anyone's going to buy, and that's, free for all. And that's one, that's one of the big differences, right? So people who have done the real estate crowdfunding platforms so far, whether it's stuff like Realty Mogul or, or originally Fundrise or more recently Cadre or, or Lex, they are picking properties. Cadre, for example, is buying things on its own balance sheet and then reselling it to its members internally. Our mm. goal is to create a real market. I mean, a true, I mean, the New York Stock Exchange doesn't buy companies and then do primary offerings in that, right? So our goal is to create a market. That being said, the New York Stock Exchange has listing standards, and so do we. So initially, to get this thing off the ground, we are actually working with sellers and finding properties to list in there and doing a lot of the heavy lifting of the structuring and, and everything else. But the goal eventually, I mean, we're, we're trying to do, you know, a billion in total, you know, assets trading in the market within the first probably 18 months or so, you know, a couple of billion in the first couple of years. And then by that point, once you get to the size size and scale in the marketplace, our hope is that people will come in, both sellers to, to list properties and the people who are currently doing sponsored deals will put these deals together and bring them in. So in that sense, it's a true open market. Are there any major restrictions or complexities? that the real estate market requires that you don't see with the New York Stock Exchange, right? It's, it's actually, like what I think it's about. It's actually the other way around. Um, the, so both real estate and securities are, are both regulated and uh, licensed and restricted universes. You have to be a licensed real estate broker and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, but and a real estate sale is a sale of real estate. It's a very defined thing. It turns out, however, 
that the securities industry is much more regulated than the real estate industry. So um, real estate brokers can make claims and say things about properties they're flogging that uh, securities brokers can't say. So it's fascinating, you know, as False we combine these two universes, <laughs> right. you know, as you know, to, to, to have to be subject to all of the very stringent securities regulations while you're selling real estate. And so by effectively securitizing real estate, we're bringing these two both regulated universes together. And it's taken us probably a year and a half to just work through all the structure and all the regulatory stuff mm -hmm. and all the legal stuff. But the result of this is we have a securitized structure for institutional real estate, which really hasn't existed before. This sounds like a huge undertaking. How many people are on this team and how long have you been working it, on it? It, it is. We've been doing it now for about two years. Um, we've got a, a core team of eight people. I mean, I've, I've got the perfect background for this, but it, it's nowhere near enough of background. So we pulled in a, it's a sort of super A team. So our president is Lizanne Galbraith, who, like me, is a third generation real estate and one of the large real estate families in the country. She actually was the CEO of Galbraith and Company, which eventually merged into LaSalle Partners that became JLL, the world's largest real estate company. So she mm -hmm. was on the board of JLL and Married hotels and resorts and, and Starwood and so on. Um, for on the, so that's the real estate side. Uh, also, another fellow real estate alum of ours, uh, Lauren Rose, uh, fourth generation real estate. Um, on the real estate side, on the security side, we have Shachi Shah, who created a twenty-eight billion dollar AUM hedge fund uh, from the UK. We have Ray Khan, who's the head of our U.S. markets, who ran the credit tech units for ICE, the parent of the New York Stock Exchange, and was the uh, global head of uh, prime credit risk at Barclays. Um, we have uh, Will Nance, who ran the corporate venture arm for First Data. You might know that. Uh, Christian Vanderbrook, who ran um, government relations and international affairs for the New York Stock Exchange. Um, John Biscasil, our, our counsel, internal GC, was the lead fintech counsel for Lock Lord. Um, I mean, it's an incredible, insanely talented management team with an advisory board that includes everybody from the former chairman of the SEC, Arthur Levitt, to the former uh, uh, head of Citigroup's Global Wealth Management, Tom Jones, to the former EDP of the New York Stock Exchange, Lou Pastina, uh, to my father, Dan Rose, one of the legendary real estate uh, investors, mm -hmm. Howard Morgan, you, you well know, we both know, mm -hmm. um, uh, is on their advisory board, um, and a bunch of others. It's, uh, it's really a hell of an operation. You're knee deep in this, right? As you're getting into this, uh, are there things that are broken throughout the real estate market that you're not addressing that you'd love for people listening to this episode to go and fix? Well, given the fact that real estate, as I said, is the absolute last bastion of non-tech, we've all seen, and I'm sure you've seen an enormous amount of deal flow in prop tech, and there are now probably half a dozen venture funds, all of which have spun up in the last five to 10 years that are specializing in the built environment and prop tech because everything in real estate is completely and totally ripe for you know, technological enhancement. And you know, people would say, well, why is it if this is the world's biggest asset class and real estate per se with $50 trillion is the world's largest asset class. And if you look around New York, this is what made New York. How could it not be computerized? Well, the answer is it's really, really weird. And if you think about how real estate exists, how is it created, right? Somebody has to build a building, whether it's an office building or an apartment building or whatever. And that, but that's a very entrepreneurial, that's the essence of entrepreneurship. You are taking on a big risk. You're ranging the capital. You're pulling together the whole thing to build it. But what you don't have to have in the 21st century 
is you don't have to be a a builder per se out there with a with a you know a, a shovel and a hammer and a you know to, to build a thing right now that's the way my family started a hundred years ago when when you were we were they were builders right you would right. buy a property you would build a property you would own the property you would manage the property rent it out and that's what you would do nowadays that's all bifurcated into into individual areas so for example a real estate developer now typically works on his or her own out of their home, you know, totally remote, and you hire a general contractor or a construction firm to do it, and you hire an architect, and you hire a sales firm, and you hire a managing agent, and all of these are independent players who are brought together, sort of like a Broadway show or a movie for this one project, right? And when you have a lot of different players, a typical high-rise uh, construction job here in New York can have a hundred different subcontractors working on that project. But the only the problem is you say, well, that's great and should be perfect for organizing, using technology to make it all work together. But yeah, but they're only together for that one project for you know a year and a half or, or two years. And to get everybody on the same page on the same tech is virtually impossible. So despite the fact that um, major firms are now beginning to use some kinds of, of CRMs and building information systems in there, it's a very hard slog to get this done. And in terms of construction, no matter how big the building you're building, it's still a guy or a gal with a hammer and a nail you know, building something in and a crane lifting up concrete to pour a floor, which doesn't easily lend itself to automation, although it's coming. You're just now beginning to see well, one of the things that we we did a demo day out of, uh, last week with uh, Rebney was Real Estate Board of New York was for a robot that, that does drywall. Right. So you, so the, the person puts up the drywall and then the biggest challenge with drywall is to get the wall smooth. That's mm -hmm. you know, putting up sheetrock and nailing it in and then taping it and then putting on a, a smooth coat of plaster and then smoothing it out to get that final smooth wall across the whole thing. You put on like three or four different coats, sand it down, put on a coat, sand it down, let it dry, put on a coat, you know, make sure it's all right. Turns out that a robot can actually do that better than a person because a robot can actually monitor the whole wall, monitor the thickness of the coat. And if you set it up to do it, it can spray on an entire perfectly even coat and therefore take on out, you know, three other coats in the process, each of which takes a day or two to dry. So you can save seven days, right? That kind of stuff is actually beginning to happen. You're seeing this now, not only with, with CAD design. I mean, when I was building buildings, you had, you had big blueprints. And you would literally print it on blueprint machines. Now it's all that stuff is being done on monitors and the like. So there's lots of opportunities, every possible area of construction, real estate development, sales, management, operations, capital markets are all being disrupted at this point. And so everything's wide open. Yeah, it's one of those areas we've seen for a long time. Uh, there's a huge market, tremendous complexity. It seems like the natural vortex to pull in technology. But man, the adoption has been so slow. But that's, Why do you because, think but that's because in every other area, innovative folks can come in and apply tech and do things, right? Real estate is so, the numbers are so big and real estate development is so entrepreneurial for people who do that kind of a thing that it is really, really hard for an outsider to come in and insert themselves into exactly. the operation, right? So therefore, all you can be is a supplier of tech to the right. people who are doing it. And the people who are doing it are making a lot of money, thank you very much, and they have for a long period of time not using a newfangled tech. So they really are not that interested in hearing about new tech. So for example, one of the things that, that we have spent a lot of time looking at and, and we'll eventually come back to again is the whole question of obviously digital ledger technology and uh, blockchain and security tokens and the like. 
for which real estate would appear to be an absolutely slam dunk, logical, no brainer usage of this kind of thing in terms of sales and everything else. And the answer is that's all going to happen. Absolutely positively going to happen. But it ain't happening this year and it ain't happening next year. Despite all the high profile things that people are trying to do, this, the market is just not ready for it yet. So it's moving glacially slowly, but it will happen. Why do you think now's the time? Why are the large organizations, powerful people who oversee this industry suddenly going to start adopting? When I think more or less those organizations have been the barrier for adoption in the past. What has changed? And, and Well, it's, A, you had a pandemic in here, which is a fascinating change. The, the pandemic will likely affect real estate in the long haul more than any other thing. A friend of mine is the president of Princess Cruise Lines, right? The pandemic comes in, their entire business literally stopped dead. Bring all the ships back to port. Thank you very much. You have no business for the next year, right? So that was hurt really, really hard. On the other hand, once the pandemic is over, guess what? The ships start floating again and you're back in business. And it's essentially the same cruise business you had before. Restaurants, you know, got hammered. The, the hospitality industry, hotels, theater industry, you know, all got killed during the pandemic, but they will all come back essentially as they were. The one thing that and retail was always facing the Amazon and the you know the online end of it, and so the pandemic helped to accelerate a lot of that. But with real estate, the changes were happening relatively slowly. The remote working was happening very slowly. The idea of shared spaces and co-working spaces relatively slowly. Witness we work and everything else. What the pandemic did was to put that on mega steroids, and that's something from which the world is not coming back. There's not going to, you're not going to have, you know, next year a return to the status quo ante, just not going to happen. And so, therefore, you're now seeing an industry that is completely in flux with technology, which has been, you know, amassing at the gates for the last decade or more, um, get a, you know, bursting through. And so therefore, as, as, as previous generations die out, right? Anybody who is, you know, our generation, your generation, who is now coming into real estate comes in, you know, grew up on computers, right? They didn't bring computers in. They grew up on it. They use smartphones. They, everything they do is, is online. And so this new generation is going to look at, at technology. Well, duh, of course you use it to do all these things in terms of capital markets, analytics, construction, and everything else. Fascinating. Fascinating. So what, when you look into your crystal ball uh, and you think about the future of real estate, obviously it's going to be different than it was pre-pandemic. What are your predictions for the post-pandemic world? How is it different? The really, well, so some things are gimmies, right? Some things are sort of easy ones, which is that you'll, you know, as you build new hotels and stuff, they'll be built with more pandemic kind of awareness stuff and better ventilating systems and so on and so forth. But that's not a major change of something. You're going to have the, the, the question of retail, destination retail, malls and stuff is very sticky uh, because people are increasingly shopping on Amazon and wherever. And so you may have a local right now, you bet your local Best Buy store is serving as the showroom for Amazon, which drives Best Buy absolutely crazy. People go and look at the things on the floor at Best Buy and buy it on Amazon, which is why Best Buy is putting QR codes and every one of their things there and trying to get you to buy it on their site while you're in the store. Um, what you're seeing with office buildings, however, is going to be where the mega, mega changes. Because while there was a move to a more flexible kind of economy around real estate that had to do with shared work, I mean, the, the year, years of you know, taking a 20-year lease 
on your office space for a fixed building and, and putting in a million dollars worth of infrastructure, that's gone, right? That was that was sort of in peril starting about 10 years ago and five years ago, as you began to have shared work environments and you needed flexible space. And whether you had WeWork or things like Notel or other things where you were trying to work around, how do you companies today, any company you're investing in, I'm investing in is going to be a flexible company. We wouldn't want them taking a 10-year lease on something, right? So you're talking, you needed flexible space and the industry had to supply that. It started out doing that with the whole idea of shared stuff and whether it was WeWork as the, as the sort of standard bearer. And then every developer began to put their own branded stuff in, in place. Uh, Dish Inspire and Regis and the others were, were all doing these things. But that was how, as you could project how things were going to go. The pandemic comes along and everybody had to leave their offices, including their shared office space facility. And now they found, well, wait a minute, we can actually work at home. We can actually work remote. We can have a distributed team. And with Zoom and everything else, it actually works. And you know what? We just saved two hours a day of a commute. We saved all that time of hanging around at the lunch hour and not getting anything done. Um, and so the real estate industry was shaking in its shoes because they saw everybody departing. I had a fascinating uh, at the, the lobby conference this year. I moderated a panel on the future of real estate, and it was all about you know, all the major tech players were there. So we had folks like you know from Google and Apple and, and Facebook and everything. And you would have thought that they were all the ones who would be saying, "Okay, that's it. We're not coming back. They always all work at home." To my absolute astonishment, the one thing they unanimously agree on was office space is not dead. We need office space. Nobody wants to work at home all the time. If you have kids or whatever, you need mentorship. You can't do it at home. We want to get back to the office. But the difference, and that's good news for the real estate market, but the, the difference is that how offices will be configured in this new world is very different. Quora is a fascinating example. In the middle of the whole pandemic, Quora moved to a remote first company. They said, okay, yeah, we're based in Mountain View. We have our HQ here, but you know what? This is no longer our HQ. We will now hire anybody with zero respect to to you know where they're located. We are turning our office in Mountain View into a co-working facility. Effectively, anybody can drop in here. The CEO isn't going to be here. Management isn't going to be here because they're working remotely as well. And so, so I think you're going to see more of that. What you're going to see is offices as a place to come on a on a occasional basis, a periodic basis, two days a week, three days a week, a week a month, you know, you know, a month every, you know, every other month or something for a distributed universe. There is stuff you have to do in person. There are some meetings that are really best had in person. You really can't do over Zoom, but it's going to be a real rethinking of the market. And nobody in real estate knows the answer to this. Absolutely nobody. When does US REM go live? Because now seems like a great time to be buying real estate. So I'd like your marketplace to be online. Uh, it is. We actually are on live the, starting last week. So our first property is now in the market. Uh, remember, it's designed not for credit investors or retail investors. It's designed really for sort of, you know, large family offices and above. Um, minimum check size is 250K up to, you know, millions. Um, but we're, no, we're in the market now and we have a lot of interest from a lot of family offices because what we're specializing in is what's known as core real estate. Real estate, as a, as a, here's a term, term of art, is designed into four, four, divided into four major types of uh, assets. You have opportunistic, and that's what people often think of, which is the opportunity to make a fortune by building a new development, right? That's, you know, you build Hudson Yards or you build something from scratch. You have value add, which is taking an existing property and redoing it into something, doing a co-op conversion, re releasing an entire new property, taking an empty warehouse and filling it up. 
And then you have at the other end, core and core plus. And core is the safest real estate there is. It's a, it's a, a prime property in a prime location, which is fully leased to a creditworthy tenant on a long-term lease where people are just writing checks. And so that's the closest thing to a, a bond, right? You, you buy the property and people send you rent checks and that's it. And that's core. And then core plus is that, but except one of the things is not quite the same. It's in an off area. It's a smaller building, requires a little more leasing and so on and so forth. So at US REM, we're specializing, at least initially, in core and core plus properties. Uh, and so that's the kind of stuff for wealth preservation rather than wealth, wealth creation. And that's why you're looking for institutional investors to do that. And so if any institutional investors in the audience, uh, you know, drop me a note and I'm happy to put you in touch with our uh, market folks. That's awesome. Now let's, let's shift, uh, switch gears here for a minute. You mentioned Andrew Yang. Couple minutes ago, uh, you and I are both friendly with him. Um, I know you've been a supporter of his over time. Um, what do you think's at stake in this mayoral race? What's at stake in this election for New York City coming out of the pandemic? You know, New York City needs a reset, and that reset can be a renaissance, a rebirth of what was before in a slightly different way. Or it can be a, a new city. I mean, Le Corbusier once wrote that, you know, you know, New, you know, you know, 20 times New York has been destroyed and 21 times it has been rebuilt even better than it, than it was before. Um, and so given all the changes we just mentioned about real estate and work and culture and everything else that's happening, you know, New York City is the capital world. I mean, you know, people in London or wherever may not like that, but it's true. Uh, and because of that, it is this unique spot that everybody is focused on. And now that you have the, you know, some major companies saying they're going to move to Florida or wherever for their headquarters and stuff, you're going to see a, a resurgence or a change in the nature of the city. And what therefore New York City needs at this point is a leader. And you think about the people who have led New York City throughout its history, you've had at various times functionaries, effectively bureaucrats whose job was job was not to rock the boat. Um, you had, you know, people who were totally financially oriented um, to, to, you know, take us through a crisis period as Bloomberg and so on and so forth. Um, and occasionally you've had leaders, charismatic leaders who were champions of the city, who represented all that the city could offer in terms of opportunity and everything else, right? Think of Fiorello LaGuardia. Think of Ed Koch in the best days of Ed Koch out there, right? I mean, these were people who who were synonymous with the city, who, who were cheerleaders on the one hand, leaders on the other to get people to follow them to do often uncomfortable and tough kinds of things. And so what New York needs right now coming out of this pandemic, on top of all the other stuff that was facing New York anyway, given the advancing technology, uh, is a leader. And you look at the field, you got the biggest field, I think, in New York City history running for mayor with 30 some odd people, uh, of whom a number are really pretty qualified for this. But of all of those, I think that Andrew, who I've known for over a decade and you've known for a long time, is absolutely a leader. And I, and I find it fascinating that the people, the city seems to realize that that's the case. I mean, he is consistent before he announced he has been the, the polling leader. He has led every single poll by double digits since before he announced. And what that says is people who were respond to polls and they try and capture everybody so that the people are saying this is the guy for what we need now. On the other hand, the establishment, both the political establishment, the progressive establishment, the New York City papers are all attacking him. I don't know what the Daily News has against him, but the Daily News has been dead against him as are several other things out there 
which is wild. I mean, I've known this guy, as I said, for a decade. He is totally straight. He is smart as all hell. He was one of the first people to really understand the whole question of accelerating technology and what it means to the economy. And something like UBI, universal basic income, you can like it or not like it, but we are going to end up unalterably without question with something like that because the accelerating pace of technological change is simply going to upend society as we know it and for a city that is now on the verge of something new right whether it's resurgence or reinvention you need a leader you need a leader who understands all of the really tough stuff that's happening on the one hand um, who is an entrepreneurial out-of-the-box thinker but who is a rational person uh, and that's Andrew Yang that's fantastic are there particular policies that you think are mission critical in the short term? And you mentioned UBI, universal basic in- income, for folks listening. Are there things that you think we really need? And I ask, I want to ask the question from two lenses: one, from broader resurgence of New York, and then secondly, selfishly, from the development of the tech ecosystem. Are there policies you're looking to? So the tech ecosystem is fascinating. It is remarkably resilient. Um, so. You know, you had under Mike Bloomberg, a techie, a tech entrepreneur who did a lot to spur the development of the tech ecosystem in the wake of the global financial crisis. Um, so it was, for example, under Mike Bloomberg that we conceived of the concept of digital.nyc, which is an online hub for the whole tech and startup community over here. So we actually, I actually designed that for Bloomberg and we built this under initially a contract um, for from the EDC under Bloomberg. Uh, it took a long time to build that whole platform. And then, you know, after he was out of office, you, you have de Blasio come in and de Blasio, who means well, but is neither a techie nor an entrepreneur, um, nor particularly business friendly, um, had no tech policy. And he was, however, smart enough and politically astute enough to realize that this thing we developed for Bloomberg was actually a logical thing to help enhance the tech community. So um, it was under uh, de Blasio's watch that um, digital.nyc actually got launched. And, uh, you know, a year later, um, uh, you know, New York City was named the most advanced tech city in the world in terms of what the city was, was doing to help develop the, the whole tech universe here. But as you and I both know, being VCs and investing in this space and entrepreneurial types, the whole, what is starting the tech industry, what starts the tech industry and powers it are entrepreneurs, our founders, our private sector money. Nobody has ever been able in any country anywhere to say, oh, hi, I'm here from the government and I'm here to create a tech ecosystem, right? It doesn't work. You can't create entrepreneurs. You can't, you know, only so much you can do in terms of funding them. Um, you know, Governor Cuomo tried to do something with Startup New York on a, on a statewide scale with, with um, uh, the whole Opportunity Zone question and uh, zones where they were trying to get people to come into. It was an interesting effort. It was well-intentioned. There were some good things about it. But in practical terms, it really wasn't very effective at getting jobs and new jobs into those areas. So I think you will find that the the startup universe here, the tech community that we have in New York, is remarkably resilient and is is built of, by, for, and with entrepreneurs, founders, founding teams, angels, VCs. And as long as government doesn't proactively get in the way of doing it, it's going to flourish. So I think that as far as the tech community is concerned, we, you know, the, on the one hand, we'll do just fine. Thank you. If you get out of our way and, and don't do crazy things. On the other hand, the city itself absolutely positively needs to do something about tech because tech and 
in the city government itself has long been neglected. You had a good start under Bloomberg, but it wasn't enough. Nothing's happened over the last eight years here in the city. I was talking to Andrew Roche recently, who, you know, from, from Civic Hall is right in the middle of these, these things. Um, yep. and you know, there, there is an absolute need for the next mayor, whoever it is. And of course, it would be a, a no brainer under, under a Yang mayor, mayoralty, um, is to effectively establish whether you call it a tech czar or a, a functioning, you know, deputy mayor level CTO or something to really apply technology to all the workings of the city government on the one hand and use it to enfranchise a much larger part of the New York City population. We now, there is a digital divide and New York is better than most places about coming over it, but we're certainly not there yet. Whether just looking at what's happening with school kids in the public school system who are in homes without broadband internet, without iPads and everything else, it's been a debacle. And so we need to apply, the next mayor, whoever the mayor is, needs to absolutely apply technology, A, to the city, and B, to the city's population itself. And do you think that's like uh, more or less a giveaway? And I know that that's a loaded phrase, but it's making sure people have access to broadband or low-cost iPads. What is the actual thing that needs to be done outside of applying the, techno the software to the city itself? Well, I think I think those are two right. The, the two things are one applying it to the city, which is a whole other kettle of fish, and you, you're not looking for a city time mega giant you know back end installation. You're looking for you know applying technology the way all of us would consider applying technology rationally in the private sector you know to business. But the you know the the two biggest things for the population are you know one broadband a total universal broadband access to everybody everywhere so that should mean because in the 21st century if you are not online you are not you, you're like a dr seuss animal that doesn't exist right <laughs> you, i mean you, you you have to be there because everything we do is this whether it's, it's a public utility now we're, we're connected on on a, on a podcast we're connected on clubhouse simultaneously doing all this stuff right i mean so and so everything that's happening is happening online so you cannot disenfranchise people by not having them do that number one right number two you need something to access that having broadband doesn't do any good if you don't have a terminal device whether it's a computer or an ipad or an iphone or something that would let you go to school go to work you know participate in the remote economy and the like so, and again, I don't know whether this is grants or whether it is enabling, I mean, what, we, what uh, uh, Google and Sidewalk did with, with Link NYC, right? Which is a, a very, that's a private sector, totally private sector funded operation where advertising revenues from these digital kiosks on, on the street is paying for the distribution of, if not universal, at least very widespread broadband and, and great utility on the streets. I think you have to think out of the box at things like that. I think the city can do a lot to encourage the private sector. One of the things I would hope to see under the next mayor, and I think will be really great if it's under Yang and, and a few of the other candidates, uh, is making use of the private sector. I mean, you know, Bill de Blasio, who, again, I assign good motives to de Blasio. I am much less of a detractor of his than most people I, I know are. I think he has tried his hardest. I think he's misguided. And I think he's inefficient and I think it really hasn't worked. But that being said, he's trying. But the one thing he really hasn't tried that much to do, which I think is one of the biggest failures of the administration, is that of engaging the private sector. Because New York has a vibrant private sector, and I think the private sector is going to have to be a part of this. And whether that means the next mayor spurring the development of small businesses, right, bodegas and um, uh, newsstands and nail salons and things that are historically, you know, immigrant-driven businesses that provide street-level services and, and, a, and a path up, 
or whether they are the startup economy that you and I operate in in, in Silicon Alley here in New York, or whether they are keeping middle class businesses that are operating that want to operate here that are storefront retail and the like, but can't economically do it, providing some way to help them. I think that's all required. And I think that's going to be an important part of the agenda for the next mayor. A lot of the stuff that Yang's initial platform was based on, to me, when, I, when he ran his presidential campaign, and a lot of the stuff you're referencing seems to root in the concepts that were really brought to market by Singularity University. And I know uh, you were involved in the early days of getting that set up. Would you give a quick overview of what Singularity University is? Oh, that's a straight line. And I love you for it. Yes. Um, and and, and you're, you're absolutely right. And that Andrew has been effectively the singularity candidate. He's actually spoken at singularity events. We've had him out there for various things. So singularity university, and I'll, and I'll try to keep this relatively brief because this is one of my, my hot button issues, um, was founded over a decade ago by a guy named um, uh, Peter Diamandis, who founded the XPRIZE Foundation, and Ray Kurzweil who is probably the closest thing our generation has to Thomas Edison. And so Kurzweil had written a book called The Singularity is Near. And his premise was everybody is familiar, at least everybody literate is familiar with Moore's Law. And what is Moore's Law? Moore's Law, uh, Gordon Moore, the former CEO of Intel, made an observation that the number of transistor equivalents that Intel could fit on a chip was doubling every 18 months. And he made this, I don't know, 30, 20 odd years ago. Um, and it kept going. And he said, as far as we can see, this doubling is going to happen. And so that got taken as a shorthand for, oh, wow, technology is advancing because Intel could fit this many chips on a, you know, transistors on a, on a chip. So Kurzweil looked at this and said, okay, um, I wonder if we normalize it. So instead of just transistors on a chip, you try and you apply it to technology generally. So after a lot of, of thinking around, he normalized the, the definition or the, the metric to millions of computer and millions of instructions per second per dollar. In other words, what does it cost you to do, you know, computer instructions or digital instructions in this time frame for this amount of money? And so once you normalize it, he then looked back in time and he said, you know, from the beginning of the 20th century, when you had Herman Holler that invented punch cards with the founding of IBM in 1908, 1910 census, um, and then you move up to things like relays, which allow you to throw a large load with a with a small bit of energy, and then you go to vacuum tubes, which enable you to store one bit of data, and then you go to transistors, and then, and then you go to integrated circuits. Each of these paradigm shifts um, changed the way we we did things, and if you look at the at the time between them. And you look at the you know millions of instructions per second per dollar, once you normalize it, you can take this the equivalent of Moore's law back to the beginning of the 20th century. You say for a hundred years or 110 years, it was growing at that same pace. So then Kurzweil said, Well, wait a minute, if that was true for a hundred years through five different paradigm shifts, I wonder if you can go farther back than that. So he pulled every list of paradigm shifts in technology that anybody had ever done, the Smithsonian, Will and Ariel Durant, the, the British Museum, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, from the you know fire and the Bronze Age to the wheel to whatever it is, and you plotted it all out. And son of a bitch, it turns out that this same doubling every 18 months has been true back to the beginning of recorded human history. And so he said, Holy moly, once you look at that and you say that effectively technology, once you normalize the definition, has been doubling every 18 months for recorded history, 
well, the first question you asked is, well, why didn't, you know, cavemen have iPhones in that, if it was rolling that fast? And the answer is, if you start very, very small, you know, 0.0001, and you double it, you get to 0.0002, and the incremental change is very, very small. And it's only when you get up to, you know, 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.8, ha, 1.6, 3.2, and all of a sudden you hit the knee of the curve, and when you plot it on a, on a linear chart, it looks like, whoop. It skyrockets. And we hit the knee of that curve in the 20th century, right, with the development of everything from computers to rockets to whatever. And now this is the point that Andrew Yang keeps making, because you're right, he's the perfect singularity candidate, that with this exponential growth of technology doubling every 18 months. I mean, the, the current iPhone 12, the chip in the iPhone 12 can do 13 trillion instructions per second, which is insane. That is mind-bogglingly insane by any metric you want to put it in. Right. And you think about doubling that every 18 months effectively for the foreseeable future. And so Kurzweil said, well, wait a minute, if this has been held and holding true for all of humanity and it's continuing to double, well, what happens when you continue this you know, forward? And where do you go in the next paradigm? shift? Well, the next paradigm shift, according to Kurzweil, is will happen when the next generation of computers begins to design the next generation of computers, when effectively when computers and humans merge. And at that point, either we're, we're all the $6 million man and the bionic woman, right? Because we've got computers throughout our entire body, or else the other way around, you, you know, clone your, your brain and put it in a box. And that box now can do a Mark Peter Davis podcast as well as you can with the same history and the same, you know, everything else in that Probably box. a lot better. And, 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 a, and a synthesized voice and everything else, right? And looks like George Clooney. Um, and so, you have, so, <laughs> you know, and, and so you have this box. So, so Kurzweil said the next, paradigm shift will be computers and humans merging. And so then he wrote this book, The Singularity is Near. When is that going to happen? And so based on everything he knew of and everything he could figure out about developments in computing power and gen general artificial intelligence and miniaturization and robotics and nanotechnology and so on and so forth, he said, okay, he projects that that shift is going to happen by 2045. So that's, that's 24 years from now. That's the thing that that I think bucks a lot of the people who are following the exponential concept is where the line goes. I think it's hard for people to even imagine or take it seriously that that, that type of reality. And that's, so, and that's the point, but that's exactly what singularity was all about. So, so when this book came out, there were three reactions. The first reaction was from, you know, people, oh, that's ridiculous. Human exceptionalism. It'll stop. It can't go on forever. There's a Malthusian version of this, that. Forget that, right? This, forget those people. They don't believe in technology. They don't believe in vaccines. They don't believe in a whole bunch of other things, right? The second group said, smart people said, okay, yeah, you're right. That's where things would, would end up if we survive. But you know what? We are not that good. We're already overheating our, our planet, whether you have climate crisis, whether some crazy person's going to have a suitcase nuke and take out New York, whether you're going to have a nano cloud and an EMP to blow up civilization. Our civilization is not going to be able to stand that long. So don't worry about what happens in 2045, figure out how we get there, right? That's a little dyspeptic, right? And so the third group of people were people who agreed with the second group that it's actually accurate and the, and the projections are really pretty close and that somehow we'll manage to survive to get there. And that third group said, okay, well, now what do we do? And so that group consisting of people like Google and um, NASA and, um, you know, uh, uh, Autodesk and, um, you know, all kinds of major players, Nokia got together and said, okay, let's do something. And Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis created this thing called Singularity University to act as a sort of a think tank and a postgraduate program to, based on this thesis, 
bring together the world's brightest next generation of entrepreneurial leaders and, and thinkers, out-of-the-box thinkers, and give them a whole quick, intense grounding on all these different areas, technology and space and network and so on and so forth, and then set them to solve humanity's grand challenges and see how they can positively affect the lives of a billion people. And that's what Singularity University was all about and has, has, has had done an amazing job not perfect, but it's done a great job of at least spreading the word. And now people like Andrew are beginning to pick it up and, and implement things on that. I think they've really made some of these comp- uh, concepts far more mainstream. Right? There's a 60 minutes on exponential change and how the um, quality of life is, is evolving rapidly. You've got Andrew Yang talking about UBI. Right? It, it's out there, and I think it's almost a household concept. But my question for you is, taking away the the medium term 2045 projection, right? Because I think people have a hard time swallowing that, whether we can debate the merits of it or not. There's a path there. And you had mentioned a few minutes ago that the, because of technology's rapid accelerating change, it's upending the social structure and we need to have a UBI. Will you fill in the blanks around that narrative for people listening? Sure. Why, why sure. is accelerating technology going to make it so we need a universal basic income? Got it. Okay, so let me back up one second in terms of, of tell you the, the one thing that Singularity is best at doing, the single most important output of Singularity University deals with your, your first question, and that is people can't grok the whole idea of what is this exponential change. And so going through Singularity, you are getting immersed in that in that universe. To me, I analogize it to getting a permanently affixed pair of augmented reality goggles. Because once you once you have gotten the idea of exponentials into your head, and exponentials are the whole basis of singularity you. What that tells you is that we are so used to thinking of life in a linear fashion, one, two, three, four, five. We are not used to thinking in terms of exponential, two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty, or sixty-four, you know, one gig, two gig, four gig, right? Um, and so once you actually get into your head that technology is advancing that way, right? I mean, if somebody had said the biggest store in America by an order of magnitude would would not have existed 25 years ago. And now, you know, my, the, the, the truck pulls up in the morning and Amazon delivers every, you know, every apartment in my building is getting an Amazon delivery every day. Right. Um, so these the major impact of this of this exponential change is outstrips our ability to understand or even envision that as as people. And so what you're seeing is in you know with this exponential growth a fundamental change of what business is. If if somebody had told you just like they told you the pandemic would stop all the business in the world, that all retail, the storefront the, the local street retail would be effectively eviscerated because you can get Amazon Prime real delivery for free of anything you want from a giant warehouse in you know Long Island it'll it'll come in and and, and put that forward a year, two, four years. Right. It'll be delivered by drone right to your window. It'll be cut. Co- it'll be coming in if it's a digital thing beamed directly into your brain with nanotechnology tying into the matrix. I mean, the, you know, once you start looking at where this technology goes, it fundamentally affects work. And one of the most telling and fascinating statistics that I've seen, and it's the opposite. Paul Krugman wrote, a, wrote a, an, uh, an editorial in The Times last week, you know, saying Yang can't do the math. He doesn't understand what's going on. And the problem is Paul Krugman is a very bright guy does not understand exponentials. And that's the core challenge there. So he was saying, well, you'd expect if technology was really going to be eliminating jobs, which is what Andrew was saying, you would have seen that appear in the economy. Well, you know what? You did. And the only the way to make that totally stark is to look at a graph consisting of the GDP, the, the domestic output of what you're doing, and the average wage, the average worker wage. And what happens is GDP goes up and the wage goes up straight line. From the beginning of the 20th century, it goes up, it goes up until 
the 1970s. And in the 1970s, what happens? <laughs> okay, GDP goes up and up and up, continuing, and worker wages flatline, literally flatline. And so what why is that 70s? telling you? What why that tells you? Why the 70s? Because that's when technology first came into play in any kind of scale. And so what has happened since then is that all of the GDP pertinent to the growth of technology has not been captured by people. It's been, and so if you take a look at the jobs that are being eliminated, right, the, the first jobs to go are resource extraction jobs, mining. Mining is not coming back for all those, those mining jobs, right? Then production, manufacturing, going to robotics, transportation, going to autonomous vehicles, retail, going to online stuff automatically. And what you are seeing is, is going to be a systematic disassembling of the economy and all of these, these jobs that are either unskilled or semi-skilled jobs that are going to be literally gone. And so you're going to get to a point where when you rebuild the world, you know, from, from scratch in X number of years, pick a number, 5, 10, 25, 50, whatever number you want, you want to pick. What does the world look like? It looks like you, you've got entrepreneurs, you've got the creative and engineering types who work with entrepreneurs to create these new companies. You've got another generation, that, another group that I call um, entrepreneurial personal producers. These are, you know, Airbnb hosts, Uber drivers, whatever, Etsy sellers who are using an existing tech platform to create personal value. And then after that, you got nobody, you got no employment. And I, and if you add up the numbers, I think what that ends up unfettered is a world in which, you know, 70-80% of people are economically unemployable, which means that there is not an, anything they can do to pay for their existence on the planet because all of this new tech and new value is being created by technology. And what do you do in that sense? Unless you say 80% of the population should starve, put them on a mountaintop to die, which of course won't happen because you have a revolution and then that'll be the end of the world. Um, the only alternative is to take that new value that's being created some way, somehow by VAT or some other way and reallocate it for the basic living needs of society. Because as Peter Diamandis says, you eventually end up in a world of abundance where you will be able to have, whether it's effectively free energy or other kinds of things. And that's, and that's after this interregnum and our challenge is to get there in one piece. Thank you. I think that's a hugely valuable primer for a lot of people. I think most people have heard the exponential change concept now, but have not connected all the dots for the long-term implications of it. And the long-term with exponential change isn't that far away. That's what's so scary about it. Uh, I want to take one last tangent before we sign off for the day. I'm a collector of gadgets. I love drones. I have one wheels and segways. That's kind of my thing. I like transportation type stuff. I'm going to float a rumor, take a little risk here. There's a rumor that you're a collector too. Can you confirm or deny the rumor that you collect trains? <laughs> I can confirm it. Uh, although, I, like you, I'm a transportation buff. Uh, so I have my Segway. And by the way, a Segway is the perfect you know, pandemic vehicle. I mean, I go to my parents and all around the city on my, my Segway. But yes, I do. I started out with model railroads. And then there's a long story, which we don't have time for in the remainder of, of this room. But suffice to say, that I actually did a, it was a main stage TED Talk, by the way, on how I ended up with it, um, which can be seen if one looks long and hard enough for it. We'll, but we'll link to it in the show notes. I, we'll find it. Uh, I, I actually have a caboose, a full-size railroad caboose um, up in Tilton, New Hampshire, which lives in a, in a commune with a dozen other cabooses. And when the moon is full on certain nights in the summer, we hook up an engine and you will see this caboose train going through the lakes region of New Hampshire uh, with my caboose on it. That's amazing. David, thank you for being on today. It's been my pleasure. It's been a fascinating conversation. Absolutely. Wow. 
We covered a lot on this one. Huge thanks to David for joining us and sharing his wisdom. That was some awesome information and history about real estate and tech. I'm very excited to see what happens with US REM. I want to buy some buildings. If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for innovation with Mark Peter Davis.